2: Let's
1: bow down and we'll gather here on hallowed ground
3: to sing this all the way. Welcome to Ask a Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. As most of you know, have been listening to the show over the years. This show is in two parts. Ordinarily, the first part of the show, we take questions regarding estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Tonight, we're going to be a little different because, frankly, this is the Labor Day weekend, And I'm not in the studio taking questions. We taped our interviews ahead of time. And a lot of you know that when we tape our interviews, we're usually taping our interviews in 74th Street and 5th Avenue in Brooklyn, our main office. We broadcast live most weekends, almost every weekend, from Broadway and Wall Street at 111 Broadway. But tonight, we're not live in the studio, so we can't take any phone calls or any messages. So if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you can give us a call Tuesday, the day after Labor Day, at 718 238 6500. 718 238 6500. Now, what are we going to do tonight? Well, most of you know during the second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, and of course, every once in a while, we talk about baseball. And I think we're going to be talking somewhat about baseball tonight. One of the guys we're going to have on is is our one of our favorite guests, Ron Hunt? Now, Chris, you probably never uh, saw Ron Hunt play, right? No,
4: I've never, I've never had the opportunity. He's a
3: good, hard-nosed ball player, and he in 1964, the fans voted him ahead of Bill Mazarowski as the starting second baseman for the National League All-Star Game.
4: I, I, I would have to disagree with that respectfully, as a fellow Polish person, but um, I'm sure he had, he had his, you know, the go- good opportunity to play.
3: Also, later in the show, we're going to be talking to Jay Jaffe, who writes in his book that Bill Mazeroski does not belong in the Hall of Fame.
4: I would again have to respectfully Mm. disagree with him. I think that Bill Mazeroski's career definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, especially for his his game-winning home run.
3: But That's one, one event. Roger Maris is not in the Hall of Fame. He had 61 home runs in 1961.
4: Well, Roger Maris also couldn't play a defensive second base like Bill Mazeroski could.
3: That's true, but then Roger Maris is a pretty good right fielder. I have to say so myself. But, all right. You know, and part of the question is, do we really know the defensive metrics of some of the great defensive ball players like Bill Mazeroski? Are we underestimating them? Which, of course... One of my arguments is Gil Hodges belongs in the Hall of Fame, and it's not just it's not just his career. It's a combination. Yes, he had a good career. He hit a he drove in 100 RBIs almost every year for a very good team. He won the Golden Glove the first three four years. The Golden Glove was in effect. You know, some people say, well, Gil Hodges won four Golden Gloves. Yeah, but they didn't have a Golden Glove for the first five, six years of his career. So he was a Gold Glove winning first baseman, a guy who drove in 100 runs. He has one of the greatest managerial accomplishments of all time. He won the pennant with the 1969 Mets. Not only won win the pennant, he won the World Series. And you go into his non-baseball career, he was a Bronze Star winner, Battle of Okinawa. If anybody belongs in the Hall of Fame, I think Gil Hodges belongs in the Hall of Fame. Bill Mazeroski, maybe we have a better clue on defensive metrics, but uh, Mr. Jaffe doesn't believe that Bill Mazeroski or Gil Hodges belong in the Hall of Fame. And that's what baseball's all about, I guess.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you compare the players from yesterday to the guys to now, their numbers are so inflated. The game's almost entirely different. Um, but I think then, defense was really important, and it was much more important then than it is now. So, from my standpoint, I kind of I kind of lend credence to the to the theory that a good defensive player, a really good defensive player, should that should count towards his uh, his credentials to go into the Hall of
3: Fame. All right. So first tonight we're we'll beginning talking baseball. Then we're going to talk about the Civil War Roundtable, which Mr. Kaznicki here is the new vice president of programming for the Civil War Roundtable, starting this year. And then we'll wrap up at the end. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors.
0: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more.
5: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, September 12th at Wachelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and on Wednesday, September 13th at the 3 West. Club 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
5: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718 718- 238 6500 or go to Connors
5: and Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718 238 6500 or go to Connors
1: and Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. We're going to be talking right now
3: with Christopher Kasnicki, one of the attorneys at Connors and Sullivan. But more importantly, he's vice president of programming for the Civil War Roundtable of New York. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing good, Mr. Connors. How are you? We've got an exciting, I think, an exciting year coming up for the Civil War Roundtable of New York. Who's our first speaker?
4: On September 13th, that's a Wednesday of 2017, we'll have, first up, Williamson Murray. He is a professor emeritus at Ohio State University, and he's going to be talking about his book, A Savage War. And specifically, he's going to be talking about a military history of the Civil War. And he's one of the few people, one of the few historians out there who actually still studies Military history. So, he's going to be a great guy to have on September 13th, 2017. Again, that's a Wednesday. Right.
3: And some of you may remember, you just listened to William Samary speak last week on our show. October, we're going to have something a little bit different. We're having Joseph Owen... A historian with the National Park Service, we always have historians with the National Park Service with us, but his book is going to be Texas at Gettysburg, Blood and Glory with Hood's Texas Brigade. How did you find him?
4: Well, he's somebody that I know has been writing books about the uh, Hood's Brigades, and they've been talking about the Texans, um, and he has a new book coming out, and he was, uh, he's was he been a guy who has been in a lot of Civil War roundtables across the South, as well as a lot of Civil War roundtables in the North, but um, hasn't gotten up to our New York roundtable. So I figured he'd be a great addition to have come in and talk a little bit about not only the relevance, but also the importance of, of Hood's brigade and exactly what they did at Gettysburg and talking about these Texans coming all the way up to Pennsylvania to fight on behalf of the Confederacy.
3: Now, we're changing our schedule. Those of you who've been use, used to listening to our show and going to the Civil War roundtable meetings, it was traditional. We always met in the, the second Wednesday of the month. But in order to reduce costs, we're moving our meeting night in November to Monday, the second Monday of each month. And we're going to kick off November 13th, that Monday, with West Point Night.
4: What's the tradition
3: of West Point Night, Chris?
4: West Point Night, we always have either a speaker or somebody from West Point talking about um, West Point graduates or aspects of of West Point during the Civil War. Um, A lot of times it could be a history professor that's out of West Point who will be talking about aspects of the Civil War. And a lot of times we have speakers who are talking about the actual West Point careers of some of the people who are in the Civil War. So um, it's a night that specifically focuses on West Point and the West Point graduates. In
3: December... December eleventh, you have one of my favorite speakers. Tell us about them. Yeah, we
4: have great the great uh, Bud Robertson, James I. Robertson coming into uh Talk to us. He's a uh, retired now, but he's a distinguished professor emeritus at Virginia Tech University, and he's one of the preeminent Civil War historians of the last two decades. He's um he's he's got a couple topics that he can talk about. One of which may be talking about A.P. Hill, and and another one he could talk about Stonewall Jackson. He's gonna let us know which one he's gonna speak about. Um, but he is always an in- impressive person to talk to, and again, one of the preeminent historians on the Civil War. In the United States,
3: in January, it's our it's traditional again that we have our Lee Jackson night, and the speaker either talks about Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jacksons. What do we have this year? Well, this
4: year we have someone very interesting. We have someone um, named Michael Corda. Now he is, um, or he was, the editor in chief of Simon Schuster for almost forty years, and now he's the editor in chief uh, emeritus of Simon Schuster. And if the name Corda sounds familiar, um, his Father and grandfather were 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 long parts of the beginning of Hollywood. They were producers and directors. Um, and he uh, went in another direction and became an editor and an author. And to that end, he's written um, many books um, and a lot of biographies. And one of the most recent biographies that he wrote was about um, – General Robert E. Lee called "Clouds of Glory." It's about the life and legend of Robert E. Lee. It was a bestseller, um, and we're excited to have him speak. He's one of the—he's uh, a great uh, person and a resource regarding um, histories, and he's one of the the preeminent biographers. February we have the Baroness Lincoln Award,
3: which a committee is going to choose that person who best. You know, exemplifies the life of Lincoln in either in history. It doesn't necessarily have to be an author. Sometimes we've had some filmmakers come on, but that's going to be the Baroness Lincoln Award. So that's left to another committee. March again, we have one of my favorite speakers, Dr. Kurt Fields. Now, what's Dr. Kurt Fields going to be talking about?
4: Well, Dr. Kurt Fields, in case if you don't know, he has uh, not only is he a historian who has his PhD and he knows all about the history. And the background of General Ulysses S. Grant, he also is a spitting image of the general himself. Um, He looks like General Ulysses S. Grant. He talks like U.S. Grant. He acts like U.S. Grant. And we are honored to have him on that March twelfth, two 2018 day coming to our Civil War Roundtable where he will, Dr. Kurt Field's, portray General Ulysses S. Grant announcing his run for the presidency in 1868. So we're excited to have that. Which
3: about, it, it is very close to the 150th anniversary from when General Grant announced his run for the presidency back in 1868. April 9th, we're doing a little something different. John Fazio, and he's a lawyer, and he's saying that
4: Jefferson Davis should have been indicted in the plot to assassinate Lincoln. Yeah, we're excited to have John Fazio come by. Um, he has his new book. It's called "Decapitating Lincoln," and um, Decapitating Lincoln: The Jefferson Davis, Judah Benjamin, and the Plot to Assassinate Lincoln." And he makes some very interesting points about the conspiracy that was um, that was between John Wilkes Booth and Jefferson Davis in order to assassinate the president, uh, President Lincoln. Uh, This was not an event that just was hammered out by John Wilkes Booth and done by his own. What... um John Fazio is saying is that there is documentation and there is there is actual direct evidence that shows that Jefferson Davis was involved in this conspiracy. And in fact, he was probably the one who who blessed John Wilkes Booth's assassination attempt. Um, So we're excited to hear what evidence he has and what presentations he has. And we're uh, about him talking about that new book, Decapitating uh the union because i've i've heard other speakers say there's absolutely no evidence to connect jefferson
3: davis with the lincoln assassination so it'd be it'd be interesting to get you know a different perspective on that argument if there is an argument on it all right so we got an exciting year lined up for the civil war roundtable we're still going to be meeting at the 3 west club In September and October, we're going to meet at the second Wednesday of the month. November through the rest of the year, and by year, we're talking more of like a school academic year, we're going to meet on the second Monday of the month. I hope that doesn't get too confusing, but Civil War Roundtable, if you want to call for a reservation or find any more information on the Civil War Roundtable, give us a call at 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. 718-341-9811. Listen, if you have any doubts about coming to the Civil War, if you're interested in history, please come. You'll find it's a, it's a very interesting experience. We have a three-course meal. Usually it's a very relaxing night, and I have never gone to a Civil War Roundtable meeting yet where I have not learned something interesting about the history of the war. And every every month we learn something new. So join us. You can... See our new Vice President of Programming. Chris, are you going to miss any of the meetings this year? No, I will
4: not. I'll be there for every one of them early. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me.
5: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time. gradually quit going.
4: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
6: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God
5: I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
0: There's
6: peace in our home that we didn't have before.
4: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic
3: Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org
5: today.
6: Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Time now for Connors Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Hall of Fame baseball. Sometimes there's some controversy about who should be in, who should be out. We have a gentleman right now who's done a lot of research in the area, and he has a book out. The Cooperstown Casebook. Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, who should be in, and who should pack their plaques? The gentleman is Jay Daffy. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Baseball Hall of Fame. Does anybody really care anymore?
2: Yeah, I think everybody. I, I mean, I think a lot of people care. Not everybody. But I think uh, whether or not you're uh, into uh, following the proceedings, most baseball fans and, and media have a strong reaction uh, ranging, from, uh, ranging from I don't care to I care a lot, and I care particularly that this guy is out or that this guy gets in.
3: You know, a lot of us baseball fans, we have a problem. You know, how do we compare a ball player who played, let's say, in 1910, with a ball player played in 1930, with a ball player played in 1990?
2: Yeah, this, you know that that is a problem because scoring levels change over time uh, fairly dramatically, uh, and. Uh, ballparks uh, differ greatly. You know, we've got, uh, uh, say, Coors Field or Fenway Park, which, which confer great advantages on hitters, and then you've got Dodger Stadium in the mid-60s, which uh, conferred a great advantage on pitchers. Uh, what I found is that uh, now that we have developed uh, advanced metrics that help to equalize for this, uh, namely wins above replacement, uh, it, we can, instead of being attached to the round number of milestones that generally signify election or or uh, their approaches uh, at least signify election, like 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, and 300 wins. Uh, it, we can look at the value that each player provided, uh, doing more than paying lip service to defense, um, es- estimating a player's base running skill as well, uh, and uh, uh, for a picture of the quality of the defense behind him. So, um, you know, with these tools, we can... I think, do a better job of comparing uh, candidates to the players already in the Hall of Fame and identifying the ones that really stand out and advocating for their election.
3: One of the more controversial, to some extent, a lot of heated debates, Pete Rose. Should he be in or out?
2: Well, I think Pete Rose is 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 a is a very different matter in all this because you know statistically he's more than qualified to be in. He did everything that uh, uh, a guy could do to get in. But uh, the gambling issue for me, uh, you know, and and I think for baseball in general is 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 a huge uh, uh, deal breaker. I mean, he did the one, he broke the one rule that was posted in every clubhouse since 1920. Uh, He lied about it for decades. Uh, He tried to profit on it. And you know, it got him banned for life. I, I I think baseball did the right thing because if the results of if the integrity of the results is uh, in doubt, you've got professional wrestling, not baseball.
3: And the same for Joe Jackson, obviously.
2: Yeah, the same for Joe Jackson. I mean, you know, I I think it's unfortunate. I think there there are some you know some circumstances that may that, that are obviously lost to history now. But uh, to me, I think that's the right call.
3: Okay, now steroid users. What's your opinion?
2: Well, I think that you should be able to you should be able to differentiate between what what came before uh, testing was in place in 2004 uh, with the suspensions and what came afterwards. Uh, before, I think you've got uh, a complete institution of failure that prevented the implementation of any kind of uh, deterring policy. Uh, you have the wild west and the players who ran roughshod over that. You know, I think we have to live with it. I mean, I'm talking about Barry Bonds, obviously, who's uh, uh, the 10-year anniversary of his breaking the record, uh, Hank Aaron's home run record uh, is today here as we speak. Um, You know, Roger Clemens. uh, I think, you know, you you don't have to uh, induct everybody from that era. uh, But to me, I think you go by the numbers, and and to me the numbers have uh, Bonds and Clemens uh, well above the bar, McGuire kind of on the borderline, Sosa below the bar. After testing is in place, I think it's it's much more fair to hold it against those guys. I think you know Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, Rockdale Palmero, These guys earned their suspension. We have no doubts. They knew the consequences of the rules. They broke them. You know they can pay the cost. Um, you know to me that's that's a, that's a simple way of of, uh, uh, of dividing the era uh, before and after.
3: So Alex Rodriguez is out. Barry Bonds is in.
2: Uh, yes, as far as I'm concerned, yes.
3: Okay, interesting. Let's get back to some old-time traditional baseball. Again, you know, I I, I think you can say that some ball players from the dead ball era are, are overlooked, and of course, some ball players from the 20s and 30s maybe are generously put into the Hall of Fame. What are your thoughts? Can you give the, some examples to the listening audience?
2: Yeah, I, you know, there are a whole bunch of guys from from the 20s and 30s who, uh, who were elected by the Veterans Committee in the late 60s and early 70s uh, when Frankie Frisch, former uh, Cardinals and, and Giants great second baseman, who's a Hall of Famer himself, uh, was on the committee, and his teammate Bill Terry as well. Uh, they uh, elected a lot of their cronies, guys who played in a high-offense era, uh for and excelled for a very short time. I mean the league the whole league in uh in 1930 hit 300 uh the national league that is. Um you know those stats they just don't have the value that uh, uh say hitting 300 in 1960 did or 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 uh uh, you know the dead ball era, I think if you go back to the dead ball era, a guy that I point to as being uh very worthy of admission is bill dolin uh shortstop mostly for the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants um, At one point, he held the the record uh for the longest hitting streak in the national league was a was a good fielder uh was kind of an angry guy. Uh, known for his temper and his uh, his, his uh, willingness to get ejected and go play the horses, but uh, uh, he put up some great numbers in his day and helped uh, uh, the Giants win some championships
3: now I know there are a lot of Yankee fans if they look at your book they 're not going to believe that Bill Dolan was a better ball player than Derek Jeter
2: well I, you know I think that uh, uh, when you put it all into context, I mean uh, Dolan may be just a, just ahead of Derek Jeter in in the rankings of my system, which is called Jaws, but I, you know that number isn't the only thing that you should bring to a Hall of Fame argument. Um, To me, uh, obviously, those numbers are based on regular season contributions. They don't cover uh, postseason play, and obviously Derek Jeter did a lot to uh, etch his name into the history books. Uh, With that, they don't uh, consider awards won or other historical importance. And I think you know you can look at uh uh any player you know really and 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 see what other contributions they made and that could help sway uh an argument uh in in favor or against you know jaws is a tool and it's it, like any tool it's only as good in the hands of uh, somebody who knows how to use it you know without it it's 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 just a cudgel
3: now again I think you explained WAR wins above replacement. What's JAWS?
2: JAWS is the Jaffe wins above replacement score. What it is is an average of uh, both the player's career wins above replacement and what I call his peak score, which is his best seven seasons. Uh, the, the the upshot is that you know some players are in there for sticking sticking around and having long careers and putting up great totals, and others are there for uh, burning brightly but briefly. You know Sandy Koufax, Hank Greenberg, Ralph Kiner come to mind. Um, this is a concept that Bill James introduced in his historical abstract in 1985. The idea is that, you know, if you want to rank the all time greats, you, you can get very different lists if you're going by career or peak. Um, you know, at the, at the top, generally you've got some of the same names, but, uh, uh, you know, towards the middle, it, it differs. And what I wanted to do was to weight those two things equally because I found that uh, in some cases uh, the peak score uh, explained who was in the hall of fame better than the career scores. So, um, that's, that's the number it's, uh, it, it's, it's something that's become, uh, fairly popular over, uh, the last decade or so and actual voters use it.
3: How much weight do you give longevity?
2: I, you know, I think it's important. I don't think you can have a, you know, a, a, a true hall of fame career without sticking around for a good long time. Um, but you know, I don't think that everybody who sticks around for 20 years is necessarily a hall of famer. I think, you know, that's what, uh, that's why we look at these numbers and see, you know, really, what was their true value? Were they contributing on both sides of the ball? Were they, uh, were they particularly valuable, uh, more, much more valuable than the, than, than the com- competition?
3: Getting back to some of your arguments, whatever, why is Orlando Cepeda in the Hall of Fame and Dick Allen is not in the Hall of Fame?
2: That's a really good question. I would, I would argue that uh, that, that's the, that should be the other way around. Uh, Cepeda was good, uh, but once he got hurt, uh, he really kind of stuck around and, and didn't, didn't provide a whole lot of value. Uh, whereas Allen, you know, had a, had a shorter career. He had, uh, I think he was a better hitter uh, at his peak, um, rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, I think he was very damaged from the way that he was handled, uh, uh as he was coming up through the minor leagues and, uh, in Philadelphia, subject to just horrible racism. Um, you know, he was sent to little rock, uh, to be the first uh, uh, black professional player in all of Arkansas. Uh, and the Phillies gave him no support there. And he was, uh, um you know, I think that that kind of scarred him, and Philadelphia itself when he arrived there in the mid sixties was uh, was a fairly racist place as well, unfortunately. Uh, that's why Kurt Flood didn't want to be traded there. Uh, and Kurt Flood was actually traded for Dick Allen uh, in that fateful deal that set up uh, Flood's challenge to the reserve clause. But, uh, you know, I think Allen is one of, the, one, of the, one of the top guys outside the Hall of Fame if you go back to the uh, 60s and 70s uh, that my system flags as being worthy of induction.
3: Okay, now I just learned something. The Texas League, early 1960s, there weren't African-American ballplayers playing out of Little Rock?
2: Uh, there, uh, Allen integrated the league. Um, you know, it was, uh, uh, and the newspapers of the day asked it, asked uh, uh, asked the writers to down to downplay that because they didn't want more people coming out to the ballpark. Uh, uh, you know, and creating an angry mob situation.
3: Yeah, learn something every day. Let, let let's go back. You know, Bill Dolan or whatever. I think some of the ball players who played right around the turn of the century get a raw deal because as hitters, they weren't as good of hitters in by batting average. The guys who played in the eighteen nineties, and they certainly weren't good batting average as the guys who played in the nineteen twenties. But it wasn't their skill; it was the nature of the game.
2: That's correct. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind about that. I mean, you know, you had, I think, you had uh, high batting average averages, but obviously not a lot of home runs, and, and uh, uh, there was a greater spread of talent. Uh, within the league at the time. So you had, you know, the Ty Cobbs of the world, uh, and, uh, you know, a few others, Tris Speaker and Rogers Hornsby. Those guys stood out. Uh, Hornsby's a bit later, more, more of a high offense era, but those guys stood out. But, uh, uh, there are a lot of guys that I think at, at first glance we don't necessarily ap- appreciate, uh, the, the extent of their value, uh, when they were playing in, in this era when, when runs were very scarce.
3: Give the, the younger guy who maybe wants to do some research, who should he look up in baseball reference?
2: Um, Bobby Gritch is, is somebody from the 70s and 80s, uh, second baseman for the Orioles who really stood out, won a lot of gold gloves, uh, was one of the, uh, uh, the, the keys to both of the, the success of both of those teams. Came, came along a bit after the Orioles' big late 60s, early 70s peak, but just provided tremendous value on both sides of the ball. Uh, Alan Trammell, who fell off the ballot after 15 years, the great Tiger shortstop, is another one uh, I would say to look at. Ted Simmons, a uh, great hitting catcher uh, in the uh, in the 70s and, and early 80s, uh, I think has been slighted because there are already three catchers from that era in the hall. Um, Minnie Minoso, uh, boy, what a ballplayer in the 50s, the, uh, uh, the first black uh, Latin American player uh, in the majors, and a real trailblazer, somebody who Cepeda himself called the black Jackie Robinson. Um, uh, his career uh, in the majors was shortened uh, by the color line. Uh, he made uh, some gimmicky pinch-hitting appearances in the late 70s and early 80s that I think uh, adversely affected his Hall of Fame support. Uh, to me, he's a no-brainer. Um, unfortunately, he didn't live to see him uh, himself elected into the Hall, died a couple years ago just as he was getting close.
3: You know, one we're in Brooklyn, so one last question, Gil Hodges.
2: You know, my system does not love Gil Hodges. Uh, I wish it weren't so. Uh, I think more energy, emotional energy, has expe- has been expended on trying to get Hodges into the Hall of Fame than anyone else. Uh, when I look at his career, uh, what what my system sees is that he was maybe the fifth best uh, of those uh, boys of summer Dodgers, uh, and that he was. Uh, taking great advantage of Ebbets Field, uh, which was a very hitter-friendly park. And once you neutralize for that, uh, the numbers just aren't special enough, I don't think, to merit induction. But, you know, I certainly understand the emotional arguments and, you know, the connection uh, that people felt to him and the connection to the 1969 Miracle Mets. Um, Somebody else is going to have to make a stronger argument than I can.
3: Because part of that, the 69 Mets, is one of the greatest managerial accomplishments of all time.
2: I don't disagree with you there, but you know, again, that's a that's a that's a that's a more subjective consideration. And and uh, uh, like I said, I, I you know, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't burn down the place if Gil Hodges were elected. But uh, if my numbers show that Gil Hodges is, is is on the wrong side, there, I yeah, I'm not gonna. You know I'm going to go by my numbers here and and uh, uh, live with the consequences so the Hall,
3: Hall of Fame election rules about integrity sportsmanship, character, and so forth that doesn't count for Gil Hodges
2: uh, it does but it you know it doesn't move, move the needle enough um, I'm not a big believer in, the, in, in in the validity of the character clause, uh, which has mostly been used as a, as a as a means of keeping players out uh, in the in the book I explore uh, the use of the character clause and Hodges was actually somebody who uh, was often cited uh, you know as a uh, in favor of that clause um to me it's just not enough to get a you know, to to get a guy over the line i think that's kind of what i would what i would call maybe like a tiebreaker type of thing rather than um you know a a, a first cut uh there are a lot of great sportsmen uh, a lot of a lot of, a lot of players with, with great integrity uh, that doesn't mean they should all be in the hall of fame
3: all right we'll disagree on that one again one final point why is the hall of fame important
2: the, the, the Hall of Fame is important because, you know, baseball history has a connection to it. Baseball has a connection to its history like no other sport. Uh, fans carry the Hall of Fame around uh, with them in their heads. Everybody's got a beef about it. Everybody's got uh, a passionate feeling about it. And I think that's one of the things that, that, that connects all baseball fans. And, and I think uh, it's important to recognize the right guys and, and uh, to accurately tell the story of baseball.
3: Okay. Thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. I hope your book does well.
1: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org.
3: I have children. How can I protect them if something happens to Will my to
5: assets me? be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of grandma?
3: Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is one of my favorite ball players when I was a boy growing up in New York, second baseman for the New York Mets, Ron Hunt. How you doing, Ron?
7: Okay, I had a heart valve put in. Uh, otherwise, I started rehab about uh, two weeks ago, and I'm starting to feel a little bit better. It's something that I don't know anything about. You know, when you get injured 15, 18 times, that's one thing. You know, you can see it. The heart, you can't see just like beating beating the drum. The drum almost went sour on me.
3: Okay, well, listen, good luck. Hope you're doing good.
7: I'm doing okay. I'm still smelling them and not pushing them up. We had an interview
3: with Jay Jaffe who wrote a book about who should belong in the Hall of Fame. And one thing he said, which I know you would agree with, that Pete Rose and Joe Jackson don't belong in the Hall of Fame. But he said guys like Alec Rodriguez and Barry Bond should be in the Hall of Fame. What would you say to that?
7: Why should they be in the Hall of Fame when they use steroids? Well, he, uh, the guy, the guy with the Yankees, who was that third baseman, Rodriguez? Yeah, he was bad when he was with the Texas Rangers. Now, you know, one thing: uh, if if you take the stats away from them when they're on steroids, you can tell when they're on steroids. Hell, so the owner should been able, be able to tell it. The manager should have been able to tell it. And when they're on steroids, if you take those stats away from them, see what they see what they accomplished then. It would be very little. And the problem, is, well, the problem I got with it is that, that poor, those poor guys behind them, you either had to confront them, snitch on them, and do it yourself. Otherwise, you went home. And a lot of guys went home because they didn't play on the same level. Major League ball players, there should be no exceptions to the rules. And Bonzi, you know damn well, Bonzi was on steroids. And, and Rose gambled on baseball in uniform. It was, it was written in the clubhouse, no gambling on baseball, period. And now we got a guy by the name of, who is it, Mac? Uh, who's this uh, Mac guy in St. Louis? McGuire. McGuire, when he was on steroids out in the West Coast. You've seen him when he first got there and seen him when that uh, other outfielder got, got him on steroids. And then uh, I'll tell you what, if they want to do anything, they ought to do what, the, what that uh, motor, that uh, uh, cyclist that got nailed with. He He swore that he didn't use it. He got nailed. And they took everything away from it. That's what they ought to do to these guys. There should be no exceptions to the rules. Why you got rules if you're going to make up butt?
3: Now, I think what Jaffe's argument was part that the whole baseball community was complicit. The managers knew they were taking steroids. The coaches knew they were taking steroids. A lot of the newspaper reporters knew that. The management of the organization knew it, and nobody did anything.
7: Nobody had balls enough then to do it. If you got balls, you ought to be able to do it. You ought to live up to the rules. Rules are rules, and these guys, I don't care if anybody did it. You look at them, and you know damn well they had done it, and I feel sorry for the guys that got cut because they couldn't keep up with the guys in, in, in that position.
3: Now, that's a good point because, you know, some some other guy plays by the rules straight and maybe has a marginal major league career or whatever, and he could have had a better career, but he played by the rules, and nobody remembers him now.
7: Well, I'm just talking about that A-Rod. You know, he's going to signing autographs now for big bucks when he shouldn't be even included in that. And when he was with the, who was it, Texas Rangers, I guess, he was a shortstop. He was using them then. Well, the guy behind him got whacked, and the guy behind him when he went to the Yankees got whacked, too. That's bulls**t.
3: I heard, too, you know, we were talking about it, Solly Hemus is not doing real well right now when you're trying to raise money for Solly Hemus.
7: Oh, no, I just, I, I don't raise money for Solly Hemus. We just had a, we had an acknowledgement of Solly Hemus in, in honor of Solly because he was part of my bracelet. He helped me, in 19 I go back with Solly in 1962 when he was scouting the Texas League and I didn't know it. When I started my baseball program, the Ron Hunt Eagles Baseball Association and 84, I guess it was, I called him and asked him if he would write a letter so I could give it to all the guys on how and why he signed me and why he was there, because I didn't even know he was doing this. Well, the Mets sent him out there to see me play, and he followed me around all that year and put in the word for me, and that winter, uh, the Mets picked me up. On a, on a conditional basis, which I didn't even know that at the time, because I'm, I'm I'm stupid and ignorant. I married uh, 56 years, September 16th, 1961 was the happiest day of my life. That's what she tells me to tell everybody, and she's got my money. <laughs> I got five cans buried in the ground in the backyard she can't find yet. <laughs> but anyway, Sally and I have been friends and been in touch with each other, and I just thought, well... By golly, it's about time somebody realized that, and I tell all my kids, you've you got to hustle all the time because you never know who's watching you, and this is the best example. I had no idea he was there. I had no idea the Mets were interested in me, and then they bought, they purchased my contract on a conditional basis, which I didn't know what that was. Went to Florida, and Casey Stingle Miller-Huggins Field, I guess it was, Sally Hemis, Paul Wainer, Eddie Stanky, Cookie Lavagetto, and Casey stingle all little ball. And one thing about I learned about Casey right away, you didn't lie to him. You tell him the truth, you, you do what he tells you to do, and if you got a problem, you go to him. You don't go to somebody else, and you don't talk behind his back. And I did okay, and I was number seven of seven second basements, and I broke camp number three. And then Larry Burright, I think, was the second baseman at the time. He wasn't doing very good. And I remember what Casey said in spring training. If you got a problem, you come to me. So I run across him in the runway in Philadelphia, I believe. I said, Casey Stingle, Ron Hunt, number 33, second base, because he remembered numbers. He didn't remember names. He said, yes, so what can I do for her? I said, I don't think the second baseman Burwright's doing very good offensively or defensively. Maybe this would be a good time to see if I can play here. He said, You want to play that bat? I said, Yes, sir. He said, You play them all. That's how I got my start.
3: You mentioned some names there Cookie Lavagetto, of course, coach with the Mets. How did you run into Paul Weiner?
7: Down there in the Winter Ball.
3: Okay, so what was it? Paul the- Weiner,
7: little, little poison, big poison. He taught hitting. He said uh, he choked up on the bat. I wasn't choking up on the bat very much at the time. He choked up on the bat, and he said, Look, the idea is to hit line drives. Somebody's got to be quick to get to them, or hit ground balls. Somebody's got to get it, somebody's got to throw it, somebody's got to catch it. You're making somebody do something. Fly balls, if you don't have power, don't pop it up. And you got eight inches of a bat, about, two, about an inch wide. That's the main part of the bat. What the hell are you holding it all the way down for the end for to impress who? You're supposed to impress your manager, your coaches, and the fans. And that's who I played for. I played for the Mets fans. And once you were traded, after I spent four years with the Mets, and I was traded in the winter time, and the Mets didn't even call me or nothing. The sports writer called me, and I was traded to the Dodgers. And I said to Jackie, "You know, we're going to play for the fans and the money, and the hell with the owners." And that's basically what I did. Well, I fooled them for 12 years. We needed four years in the majors to be eligible for pension. Today didn't mean one to one day.
3: Well, you had a pretty good on-base percentage, so I don't think you fooled anybody. You knew well, it. Well,
7: Solly Hemus sent me a a thing not too long ago where I'm number he's number six and I'm number twenty-two.
3: Yeah, what's that second baseman on-base percentages or middle infielders?
7: Yeah, second base, I believe. I don't know. I I can't see it anymore.
3: I know Solly Hema's had an on-base percentage of about like three eighty something, which is remarkable. Yeah. If he was playing today, who knows what his contract would be.
7: Well, we played. I played for seven thousand dollars a year. And now they're making four hundred and some odd thousand. They need one year and one day in the majors to be eligible for pension. We needed four years. Anything less than four years, we got nothing.
3: I got another question about the Hall of Fame. The same guy, Jaffe, says Gil Hodges does not belong in the Hall of Fame. Now you played with Gil. I mean, I, I know a very short period of time. What's your opinion?
7: I don't know. I don't know anything about him. Yeah, I know. I knew he was a first baseman with the Mets for one year but I didn't know him as a ball player when he was in his prime. You know, they ought to have a group of guys that are responsible for baseball, baseball and, and rules, regulations, and stats. Now, if he if he qualifies stat-wise, then I think he ought to be in. I don't know, but I don't know. I don't know. If he, if, if anybody used steroids or something like that, they ought not to qualify because they not. They didn't play like anybody else. I played with my God-given ability. I didn't have any steroids or pot or that crap that they they use. Well, the pot I don't know anything about the pot, but the steroids. Just look at the the muscle tone and everything that they develop. Hell, look at McGuire now. McGuire's a skinny guy. Got a neck. Got shoulders. Got a head. You can see all three. <laughs>
3: Well, who voted him into the Cardinals Hall of Fame?
7: I don't know. But I guess the fans. I don't know who votes on that stuff. But I'm saying they ought to have a board that are untouchable. Hell, put me in touch. Put me in charge. I'll make sure it's done right. You know, that guy that uh, rode the bicycle, who was his name? Armstrong. Armstrong. He said, what's the problem with peeing in a bottle at 8 o'clock in the morning if you got nothing to hide? Well, he had plenty to hide. When they found out about him, they took everything away from him. They didn't ask him when you did it, when you used it, when you did this, when you did They just took it all away from him. That's what they ought to do to each ball player. I get tired of hearing Bonds' name as a home run hitting leader when he's not.
3: There's going to be a movement to put him in the Hall of Fame before too long.
7: I think it's bad. I think, in fact, I'll call uh, the commissioner and tell him what my thoughts are.
3: I hope he listens to you.
7: Oh, I call him every once in a while anyway, just to give him some shit. But uh, you know, if they get aboard and uh, you know, if, if they're listening to you, fine. If they're not, then I hope they. I hope they clean it up. I hope they keep it clean. And I want to thank uh, the people and the fans in New York. I got uh, probably. Well I got thirty nine ball players that play at that ballpark and fundraise for me. I got about another twenty people I'd like to see sometime. Aunt Louise, the lady that give me those chairs, she's still alive. She's in the hospital, but she's still alive. And oh, there's a book out by the name. Bill Sullivan put a book out. Uh Let's see something before the miracle. Long before Mets.
3: the miracle, the making of the New York Mets. Bill Sullivan. Yeah. Yeah.
7: That's a nice. Uh, that's a nice little book on. Well, I got a nice article in there, but he didn't pay me for it. So, <laughs> you know, as long as I, as long as I get something done for the fans, I don't mind.
3: Listen, Ron, a lot a lot of us back from the early '60s, the Polo Ground Mets, the First Shea Stadium teams, they appreciated the way you played baseball back then because you gave us a performance for our dollar. You were you played I got, hard.
7: I got hit a lot too and I'm <laughs> I'm paying for it now.
3: I'm sorry about that.
7: Oh no, don't be sorry. Eighteen times I got hit, fifteen due to baseball, and my wife didn't give a shit how I got on base as long as I went down the first and turned left. Make too many rights, you went home.
3: Well, you know, today people appreciate on base percentage a lot more than they did when you were playing.
7: Well today they got they were using the end of the bat, they're hitting the hell out of the ball. That's a wonder one of those bats hasn't stuck somebody in the chest or hit a fan or something with those little, I don't know what they're made out of, but they're awful. I remember the first bat I got from the Major League scout, Milwaukee Braves scout Dick Keeley, walked up to me and said, here, I want you to play second base. I said, okay, if the manager will let me. He did. And here's the, here's the Major League bat. I said, can I choke up? He said, well, hell yeah. Because I my grandpa raised me in the city of St. Louis, we had one place to play ball, and that was the Sisters of the Poor, which was about two miles away, and I had to walk. And he said, you know, you hit the ball hard by choking up. There's only eight inches of bat there and about an inch wide, as long as you hit the ball solid and run like heck. Don't look at it, just run. And that's what I did. Grandpa told me how to hustle. Did your
3: grandfather play any ball?
7: Oh, we played cart ball. We played pitch bottle caps, we played bottle caps, pitched horseshoes. Nope, he was a city. He was. He worked for Falstaff Brewing Corporation. He had to walk to work. Mom had to walk to the bus. She worked for White Rogers, And Grandma raised me. And if you sass Grandpa, he was about five foot two. If you sass Grandma or anybody, you better duck because you're going to get a backhand. <laughs> None of this please, Mother, may I, or sit in the corner, or crap. You got whacked. <laughs> But anyway, I appreciate you having me on. I thank you for allowing me to thank the Mets fans for the beginning, and i still like to get back in town to see you. Okay. If I do, I'll say hi to you, but I won't go in for free because they don't want to pay me, and they want to run me in and out, and I want want three or four days there. One day for them, and then my wife and I just piddle and diddle with the fans, and some people that we still stay in touch with. I love you all, and I thank you very much for staying in touch with me.
3: All right, Ron. We love you, too, out here.
7: Take care. Don't forget to sell me some copies now.
3: Okay. Take one, care.
7: One original and one, and about five or six unedited. Okay. In fact, well, in fact, you cleaned my voice up this time pretty well, but you know that, didn't you?
3: Yeah, yeah. You're, you're doing pretty good on that. <laughs>
7: <laughs> a yeah. lot better than the first hey, time. Love you, man. Take care. Take God care. bless you all, and thank you for staying in touch. We'll do that.
3: You know what I love about baseball? It's history and the fact that, you know, everybody has a different opinion about baseball history. And that's what we experienced tonight. Now, next week, we're going to have, you know, film director on, George Mendeluk. If you haven't seen the film, you, you, you may want to look at his film, The Bitter Harvest. And it's about Ukraine, the Holodomor back in the 1930s. Those of you don't know anything about history, it was horrible what Stalin did to the people of the Ukraine in the 1930s. And as George Mendeluk says, it's really not understood in history, the total evil that is Stalin. And one of the things that his film brings to light is you realize that the Soviet system, that Stalin, they were evil people. The first thing they do when they go into the town, they kill the priest, they kill the mayor, and then they start starving the people bit by bit. They just start taking away their freedoms little by little, and then, you know, their friends in the New York Times help them along with it, which is not as much in the movie as George Mendeluk would like, but he does speak about it. And at the people in the universities, they slowly get brainwashed, and they get hit with euphemisms, you know, like where starvation, death, becomes like, well, food shortage. So George Mendeluk next week, politically incorrect director, and he'll say that himself, Bitter Harvest. And he's been around in Hollywood, you know, like 40 years now. He's a veteran director. He did a film that's close to his heart, Bitter Harvest. We're going to be talking about that next week on Ask the Lawyer. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our buddy Patrick Wayne on talking about the John Wayne Cancer Institute. And we're going to be having a fundraiser for the John Wayne Cancer Institute on October 9th at the Bayridge Manor on 76th Street or 5th Avenue. There'll be more information about that in the later weeks. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors.
1: We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all away. 87182386500 that's 7182386500 and listen to ask the lawyer right here every saturday evening at 6 the preceding pre-recorded program paid for by connors and sullivan attorneys at law pllc